Hello, everyone. Welcome back to True Crimes Untold. I'm your host, Jessica Rodenz. This next episode is on Gertrude Banaszewski, the torture mother. another story of crime and punishment tonight from indiana this time the criminal is getting out of jail but as ed magnus reports not without a great deal of controversy under heavy security convicted murderess gertrude banaszewski appeared before the indiana parole board and asked to be released from prison after 20 years behind bars i'm just asking for mercy nothing else hello friends i hope you all had a wonderful weekend This next episode is definitely a shocking one. It is very disturbing and dark and twisted. Um, It was hard to read, hard to do research on. Um, That's how just shocking it really was. Uh, This episode will discuss child abuse, rape, sexual abuse, and torture, so viewer discretion is advised. Gertrude Banaszewski, the torture mother. Gertrude Banaszewski was convicted of first-degree murder for the killing of 16-year-old Sylvia Likings, who died on October 26, 1965. Gertrude Banaszewski was born September 19, 1929, in Indianapolis, Indiana, to Molly Myrtle and Hugh Marcus Van Fossen Sr., Those are both excellent names. Molly Myrtle sounds like she should be in a Harry Potter book, and Hugh Marcus Van Fossen sounds like a Disney villain name. Gertrude was the third of six children. Very little is known about Gertrude's childhood. She shared an extremely close bond with her father, but had a frigid relationship with her mother. A further wedge was driven between her and her mother when Gertrude's father died. At age 11, Gertrude watched her father die of a sudden heart attack, so very sad. At the age of 16, Gertrude dropped out of school to marry 18-year-old Deputy John Banaszewski, and they had four children together. John had a volatile temper. He was very violent, beating on his wife for annoying him. The two stayed stayed together for 10 years before eventually divorcing. Gertrude was granted custody of their children. Within a year of the divorce, Gertrude met and married a man named Edward Gerthree. Edward then divorced her after three months because he was tired of having her children around. Shortly after Gertrude and John Banaszewski then remarried, they stayed together for another seven years and had two more children together. They then divorced uh, for a second time in 1963. Around this time, 37-year-old Gertrude met and moved in with 22-year-old Dennis Lee Wright. He was also very abusive. She became pregnant with Dennis twice, and her first pregnancy resulted in a miscarriage. I had read um, a lot of people around them believe the miscarriage was a result of Dennis's abuse on Gertrude, which makes sense. Um, But then they ended up giving birth to another child. 
Shortly after giving birth to Dennis Jr., Dennis Sr. abandoned them and disappeared, leaving Gertrude to support herself and her seven children. She would get the occasional child support check from her first husband, John, and she would work odd jobs around town. She would help neighbors doing ironing jobs. Uh, She would wash clothes for neighbors. So anything, excuse me, anything she could do to make a little bit of extra money. Gertrude's health really started to decline um, around this time. She was chronically ill with a number of unidentified illnesses. She stopped practicing proper hygiene and barely ate. Eventually, it showed in her appearance. She had a receded hairline, sunken eyes, and she was very thin and sickly. People actually said that she was very skeletal looking. She was also very depressed from her failed marriages and also stressed from being a single parent trying to raise seven children. So let's get into the next family that's involved in this case, the Likens family. Sylvia Likens was born January 3rd, 1949. She was the third of five children born to carnival workers Lester Likens and his wife Elizabeth Francis, also known as Betty. Sylvia was born between two sets of fraternal twins, Daniel and Diana, who were two years older, and Benny and Jenny, who was one year younger. Jenny suffered from polio, which caused one of her legs to be weaker than the other, and she walked with a limp and had to wear a brace on one leg. Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was unstable. They would sell candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer, and they would move frequently. So wherever the carnival moved, they would follow. The family would often suffer from severe financial difficulties. The Lycan sons would often travel with their parents to help out at the carnivals, but Sylvia and Jenny weren't allowed to go because of their ages and it could be dangerous. And their parents also wanted them to get a good education. Because of this, the girls would often stay with relatives or their grandmother. As a teenager, Sylvia earned money by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing jobs for friends and neighbors. She would often give her mother part of her earnings. Sylvia was described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl with long wavy brown hair and was known as Cookie to her friends. Sylvia also loved music, especially the Beatles. She was protective of her younger sister Jenny. They would go to a local skating rink and Sylvia would help Jenny skate by holding her hand while Jenny would skate on her unaffected foot. In June 1965, Sylvia and Jenny lived with their parents in Indianapolis. On July 3rd, their mother was arrested and jailed for shoplifting. This put a heavy strain on Lester. Um, He needed his wife to attend the carnivals with him so they could make more money to support their family. So Lester arranged for the girls to board with Gertrude Banaszewski, the mother of two girls whom the sisters had recently become friends with while studying at Arsenal Technical High School, Paula and Stephanie Banaszewski. At the time of the boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester that she would care for his daughters uh, until his return as after 
as if they were her own children. After the July 4th holiday, the sisters moved in at 3850 East New York Street, and their father and then later their mother would travel to the East Coast with the carnival. The agreement between Lester and Gertrude was a $20 a week boarding fee until they returned to collect the girls in November of that year. During the first few weeks at the Banaszewski household, the sisters were subjected to very little discipline or abuse. They played with the other kids and they participated in housework. Both girls also attended Sunday school with the Banaszewski children. After about two weeks, the $20 payments failed to consistently arrive on the prearranged dates, occasionally arriving one or two days late. Gertrude began taking her frustration out on the sisters because of the late payments. She would beat their bare buttocks with various instruments, such as a one-quarter inch thick paddle, making statements such as, well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. One time in late August, both girls were beaten 15 times on the back with the paddle after Paula accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper that the children all attended. Like, what the hell, Paula? Mind your own business. Let them eat. It's not like you cooked the food. They were all invited to their church to eat. They're hungry. Let them eat. What does it matter to you, Paula, how much they eat? By mid-August 1965, Gertrude started to focus her abuse almost exclusively upon Sylvia. She was jealous of Sylvia's appearance and potential in life. According to trial testimony, this abuse was initially inflicted upon Sylvia after she and Jenny would return to the home from school and from school and on weekends. The initial abuse included beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled food out of garbage cans. On one occasion, Sylvia was accused of stealing candy that she had actually purchased, and Gertrude gave her a beating because of it. In late August, Sylvia was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach whom she had met in spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. Gertrude asked her if she had ever done anything with a boy. Unsure of what she meant, Sylvia replied, I guess so, and said she had gone skating with boys and had once gone to a park on the beach with them and Jenny. Sylvia also mentioned that she had once laid under the covers with her boyfriend. Gertrude overheard and asked, why did you do that, Sylvia? Sylvia replied, I don't know, and shrugged. Days later, Gertrude brought the subject back up, telling her, You're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby. Sylvia thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, Yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. That's sad because it's almost like I I look at it like she's just agreeing with them, you know, putting herself down, making fun of herself. Because it would be easier than what the consequences may be if she disagreed. Um, You know, so in her mind, it might have just been easier to go along with this uh, harassment that they were giving her. 
Gertrude told Sylvia and the rest of the girls in the house that whenever they did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked Sylvia in the genitals. Paula, who was three months pregnant at the time, was also very jealous of Sylvia's appearance. She ended up joining in on the attack on Sylvia. She knocked her off of a chair and onto the kitchen floor and shouted into her face, You ain't fit to sit in a chair. You ain't fit to sit in a chair. Like, okay. On another occasion, as the family ate supper, Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Lepper force-fed Sylvia a hot dog overloaded with condiments. Basically anything in the refrigerator they put on this hot dog, which then made Sylvia vomit it back up, and then she was forced to consume what she had regurgitated. Sylvia's only act of retaliation was spreading a rumor at school that Stephanie and Paula were prostitutes. Stephanie was propositioned by a boy at school, and he told her that Sylvia started the rumor about her. Stephanie then questioned Sylvia, Sylvia, and Sylvia admitted to starting the rumor. Stephanie punched her in response, and when Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Randolph Hubbard, heard of the rumor, he brutally attacked Sylvia, slapping her, banging her head against the wall, and flipping her backwards onto the floor. When Gertrude also found out about the rumor, she beat Sylvia with the paddle. On another occasion, Paula beat Sylvia in the face with such force that she broke her own wrist, primarily focusing her blows upon Sylvia's teeth and eyes. Later, Paula used her cast on her wrist to further beat Sylvia. Gertrude would later force Jenny to strike her own sister, beating Jenny if she did not comply. Coy Hubbard and several of his classmates frequently visited the Banaszewski residence to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia, often collaborating with the Banaszewski children and Gertrude herself. Gertrude would encourage the neighborhood children to routinely beat Sylvia, sometimes using her as a practice dummy in violent judo sessions, lacerating her body, burning her skin with lit cigarettes in excess of a hundred times and severely injuring her genitals. Now, these are obviously all trigger warnings, um, especially this next part. Sylvia was forced to strip naked in the family living room and masturbate with a glass Pepsi Cola bottle to entertain Gertrude and her teenage accomplices. Gertrude eventually forbade Sylvia from attending school after she confessed to stealing a gym suit from the school because Gertrude refused to purchase the clothing for her. For this act of theft, Gertrude whipped Sylvia with a three-inch wide police belt. Gertrude then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex before repeatedly kicking Sylvia in the genitals as Stephanie rallied in Sylvia's defense, shouting, she didn't do anything. That really surprised me because we've already seen that Stephanie has joined in on these attacks and now she's deciding to defend her. 
Gertrude then burns Sylvia's fingertips with matches before further whipping her. The Lycan sisters were fearful of telling their family or adults at their school, scared that it would increase incidents of abuse and neglect that they were already enduring. Gertrude would tell Jenny that if she told anyone, she would be abused and tortured to the same degree as her sister. In July and August, both Lester and Elizabeth Likings would occasionally return to, the Indianap- to Indianapolis to visit their daughters. Neither girl exhibited any visible sign of distress about their mistreatment to their parents. I can't believe that their parents did not know, you know, any signs of abuse or even just a shift in the behavior of their daughters, especially Sylvia. That's crazy to me that they didn't notice anything. After Lester and Elizabeth left the Banaszewski house on their final visit, Gertrude turned to face Sylvia and stated, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone. That is terrifying. She's basically telling her, Hey, your parents didn't notice anything that's going on here. So now they're gone and and you're stuck here. That's very scary for a child who is who this is, you know, the things that they're doing to her, you know, it's basically letting her know that it's going to continue. In September, the girls saw their older sister, Diana Shoemaker, at a local park, and they informed Diana of the abuse and mistreatment by their caregiver, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for physical abuse and almost always for things she had neither said nor done. Initially, Diana believed her sisters must be exaggerating their claims. Several weeks prior to this occasion, the Liking sisters uh, met Diana in the same park while in the company of 11-year-old Marie Banaszewski. Sylvia had been given a sandwich to eat when she mentioned to her sister that she was hungry. Marie told uh, Gertrude about this, and Gertrude accused Sylvia of engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked and bludgeoned her. They then subjected Sylvia to a scalding bath in order to cleanse her of sin, with Gertrude grabbing Sylvia's hair and repeatedly banging her head against the bath to revive her whenever she fainted. The father of a neighborhood boy named Michael John Monroe phoned Arsenal Technical High School to anonymously report that a girl with open sores across her entire body was living at the Banaszewski household. How does this neighbor notice open sores on Sylvia, but her own parents who were in the house in a very close proximity of her noticed nothing. Uh, Since Sylvia had not attended school for days, a school nurse visited 3850 East New York Street to investigate these claims. Gertrude told the nurse that Sylvia had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her actual whereabouts, adding that Sylvia was out of control and that her open sores were a result of Sylvia's refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene. 
Gertrude uh, further claimed that Sylvia was a bad influence to her children and her sister, Jenny. The school made no further investigations concerning Sylvia's welfare. Around October 1st, Diana Shoemaker discovered that her sisters were temporarily staying um, at the Banaszewski residence. So she visited the property to try and remain in regular contact with her sisters. Gertrude, however, refused Diana entrance into her home, stating that she had received permission from their parents not to allow either of the girls to see her. She then ordered Diana off of her property. So if that was me, I would have literally been like, boop, 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 911. Um, This crazy lady is not letting me see my sister. She's only a caregiver for them temporarily. I would have made a stand against that. And then same with the school nurse. It was just like a quick in and out check. Everything seemed okay. So... Nobody has done anything about this situation. Due to the increase of torture and mistreatment, Sylvia gradually became incontinent, which is uncontrolled leakage of urine. She was denied access to the bathroom being forced to wet herself. As a form of punishment for her her incontinence, on October 6th, Gertrude threw Sylvia into the basement and tied her up. Here, Sylvia was often uh, kept naked, rarely fed, and frequently deprived of water. Occasionally, she was tied to the railing of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. In the weeks prior to locking Sylvia in the family basement, Gertrude had increasingly abused and tormented Sylvia. She would occasionally falsely claim to the children in her household that either she herself or one of them had been the recipient of direct insults from Sylvia in hopes that that would make them mad enough to either belittle or attack her. On one occasion, Gertrude held a knife um, and challenged Sylvia to fight her back, to which Sylvia replied she did not know how to fight. In response, Gertrude inflicted a light scour wound to uh, Sylvia's leg. So since she wouldn't fight her back, she cut her leg with the knife. First of all, she's probably so weak. She's obviously dehydrated, malnourished. She can probably hardly stand. She's being tied up. How the hell is she going to fight you back, lady? Physical and mental mental torment such as this was occasionally seized by the Banaszewskis to watch their favorite television shows. Neighborhood children were also occasionally charged five cents apiece to see the display of Sylvia's body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and ultimately mutilate her. Throughout Sylvia's captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and neighborhood children, restrained and gagged Sylvia before placing her into a bathtub filled with scalding water and proceeded to rub salt into her wounds. 
On one occasion, Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., rubbed urine and feces from Gertrude's one-year-old son's diaper into Sylvia's mouth before giving her a cup half-filled with water and stating the water was all she would receive for the remainder of the day. On October 22nd, John Banaszewski Jr. tormented Sylvia by offering to allow her to eat a bowl of soup with her fingers and then quickly took took the bowl of soup away. And by this point, uh, Sylvia is suffering from extreme malnourishment. So that is just so fucked up to do to somebody. Uh, Gertrude Banaszewski eventually allowed Sylvia to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to wet herself which is just another form of abuse. She did not wet herself, wet the bed before she moved into that house. It was the things that they were doing to her that inevitably caused the bedwetting. But she's trying to get into Sylvia's head, trying to make her think that it's her fault that she's doing that. That night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny to secretly give her a glass of water before falling asleep. The following morning, Gertrude discovered that Sylvia had urinated on herself. As a punishment, Sylvia was forced to insert an empty glass Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina in the presence of the Banaszewski children before uh, Gertrude ordered her into the basement. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude shouted for Sylvia to return to the kitchen, then ordered her to strip naked before proclaiming to her, you have branded my daughters. Now I am going to brand you. She began carving the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it into Sylvia's abdomen with a heated needle. When Gertrude was unable to finish the branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children present, 14-year-old Richard Dean Hobbs, to finish etching the words into Sylvia's flesh as she took Jenny to the nearby grocery store. And what Hobbs would later insist were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text into Sylvia's abdomen as she clenched her teeth and moaned. Both Hobbs and 10-year-old Shirley Banaszewski then led Sylvia into the basement where each proceeded to use an anchor bolt and attempt to burn the letter S beneath Sylvia's left breast. Although they applied one section of the loop backwards and this deep burn scar would resemble the number three. Fucking idiots. Gertrude later taunted Sylvia by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved on her stomach, stating, Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? Weeping, Sylvia replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. Later that day, Sylvia was forced to display the carving to neighborhood children with Gertrude claiming that she had received the inscription at a sex party. That night, Sylvia confided to her sister, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. The following day, Gertrude Banaszewski wrote or woke Sylvia, then forced her to write a letter as she dictated the contents, which were intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away from the Banaszewski residence. 
The content of this letter was intended to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively abusing and mutilating Sylvia after she had initially agreed to engage in sexual relations with them before they inflicted the extreme abuse and torture upon her body. After Sylvia had written this letter, Gertrude finished formulating her plan to have John Jr. and Jenny blindfold Sylvia, then take her to a nearby wooded area known as Jimmy's Forest and leave her there to die. She was going to have her own sister do this to her, take her to this wooded area and leave her there. And I almost wonder if it's like, She's having Jenny be involved in that to make her feel like she's a part of their family. Um, Maybe she's hoping that that would incriminate her somehow that she was involved. I don't know. But she's asking her younger sister to take her sister to a forest and leave her there to die. After she had finished writing the letter, Sylvia was then again tied to the stair railing and offered crackers to eat, although she refused them, saying, give it to the dog, I don't want it. In response, Gertrude forced the crackers into Sylvia's mouth before she and John Banaszewski beat her, um, especially around the stomach where they just did that etching. On October 25th, Sylvia attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing a conversation between Gertrude and John Jr. pertaining to the family's plan to abandon her to die. She attempted to flee to the front door. However, due to her extensive injuries and general weakness, Gertrude caught her before she could escape the property. Sylvia was then given toast to eat but was unable to consume the food due to her extreme state of dehydration. Gertrude forced the toast into her mouth before repeatedly striking her face with a curtain rod until sections of the instrument were bent into right angles. Coy Hubbard then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and struck Sylvia one further time, rendering her unconscious. Gertrude then dragged Sylvia into the basement. Coy Hubbard is a child. That is sick. He has to have something in him. When he sees this abuse, instead of maybe going, trying to stop it or going to tell an adult, he decides he would like to join in on it. Um, Not even being forced to. Out of his own, you know, mind, he he liked it. So there's definitely something there in him. That evening, uh, Sylvia desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the walls of the basement with a spade. One immediate neighbor of the Banaszewskis would later inform police that she had heard the desperate commotion and that she had identified the source um, uh, being from the basement of 3850 East New York Street, but that as the noise had suddenly ceased at approximately 3 a.m., she decided not to inform the police about the disturbance. What? Why? You hear a girl screaming for help from a basement, from your neighbor's house. You constantly, I'm sure, are seeing kids in and out of that house. It's three in the morning, so that's not normal. 
But since it stopped, you decided decided that everything's probably okay now. No, that was that was definitely wrong. She should have picked up that phone and made the phone call. By the morning of October 26, Sylvia was unable to either speak or correctly coordinate the movement of her limbs. Gertrude did move Sylvia into the kitchen and having propped her back against a wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. Although she threw Sylvia to the floor in frustration when Sylvia was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips, she was then returned to the basement. Shortly thereafter, Sylvia became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, Sylvia was unable to recite anything beyond the first four letters or to raise herself off the ground. In response, Paula verbally threatened her to either stand up or she would inflict a long jump upon her. Gertrude then ordered Sylvia, who had defecated on herself, to clean herself. That afternoon, several of Sylvia's other tormentors gathered in the basement. Sylvia jerkingly moved her arms in an apparent attempt to point at the faces of the tormentors she could recognize, making statements such as, You're Ricky, you're Gertie, before Gertrude shouted, shut up, you know who I am. Minutes later, Sylvia unsuccessfully unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she had been given to eat, stating she could feel the looseness in her teeth. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. Jenny then left Sylvia in the basement to perform gardening chores for neighbors in the hope of earning spending money. An attempt to wash Sylvia, a laughing John Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose brought to the house that afternoon by Randy Lepper at Gertrude's request. Sylvia again desperately attempted to exit the basement but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this effort, Gertrude stamped upon Sylvia's head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs returned to the Banaszewski residence and immediately proceeded to the basement. He slipped on the wet basement stairs and fell heavily to the floor of the basement to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's emaciated and lacerated body after she had been ordered by her mother to clean Sylvia. Stephanie and Richard then decided to give Sylvia a warm soapy bath and dress her in new clothes. They then laid her upon a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered her final wish that her daddy was here and that Stephanie would take her home. Stephanie then turned to her younger sister, Shirley, exclaiming, oh, she'll be all right. When Stephanie realized that Sylvia was not breathing, she attempted to apply mouth to mouth as Gertrude repeatedly shouted to the children in the house that Sylvia was faking her death. Sylvia was 16 years old when she finally succumbed to her injuries. 
Gertrude Banaszewski initially beat Sylvia's corpse with a book, shouting, faker, faker, in order to rouse her. However, she soon panicked and instructed Instructed? instructed Richard Hobbs to call the police from a near- nearby payphone. When police arrived at her address at approximately 6.30 p.m., Gertrude led the officers to Sylvia's emaciated, extensively bludgeoned, and mutilated body lying upon a soiled mattress in the bedroom. Before handing them the letter, she had forced Sylvia to write previously by her dictation. She also claimed she had been doctoring the child for an hour or more prior to her death, having applied rubbing alcohol to Sylvia's wounds in a futile attempt at first aid before she had died. She added that Sylvia had early run away from earlier run away from the home with several teenage boys before returning to her house earlier that afternoon, bare-breasted and clutching the note. Clutching a Bible, Paula Banaszewski, having stated to all present in the household that Sylvia's death was meant to happen, then glanced in Jenny's direction and calmly stated, if you want to live with us, Jenny, we'll treat you like our own sister. As previously instructed by Gertrude, Jenny Likings recited the rehearsal version of events leading to Sylvia's death to police before whispering to the officers, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. The formal statement provided by Jenny Likings prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Jr. Banaszewski on suspicion of Sylvia's murder within hours of the discovery of the body of her body. The same day, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were also arrested and charged with the same offenses. The three eldest Banaszewski children, plus Coy Hubbard, were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center. The younger Banaszewski children and Richard Hobbs were, det- were detained at the Indianapolis Children's Guardian's home. All were held without bail pending trial. Initially, Gertrude denied any involvement in Sylvia's death, although by October 27th, she had confessed to having known the kids, particularly her daughter Paula and Coy Hubbard, had physically and emotionally abused Sylvia, stating Paula did most of the damage and Coy Hubbard did a lot of the beating. Gertrude further admitted to having forced the girl to sleep in the basement on approximately three occasions when she had wet the bed. She became evasive when the when one officer stated the likely reasons Sylvia had become incontinent were her mental distress and injury to her kidneys. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting to having repeatedly beaten likings about the backside with her mother's police belt, once breaking her own wrist on Sylvia's jaw and inflicting other acts of brutality, including pushing her down the stairs into the basement two or three times and inflicting a black eye. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion, adding that most of the time I used my fist to abuse her. 
He admitted to having burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions, adding that his mother had repeatedly burned the child with cigarettes. Five other neighborhood children who participated in Sylvia's abuse, Michael Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, had also been arrested by October 29th. All were charged with causing injury to person and each was uh, released into the custody of their parents under subpoena to appear as witnesses at the upcoming trial. The autopsy of Sylvia's body revealed that she had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The wounds, wounds themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and the stage of healing. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut, although an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was still intact, discrediting Gertrude's uh, claims that Sylvia had been three months pregnant, a prostitute, and promiscuous. Moreover, all of Sylvia's fingernails were broken backwards, and most of the external layers of skin upon the child's face, breast, neck, and right knee had peeled or receded. In her death, Sylvia had inevitably bitten through her lips partially severing sections of them from her face. The official cause of Sylvia's death was listed by coroner Dr. Arthur Kebble as a subdermal hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple. Both the shock she had primarily suffered due to the severe prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and tissues, plus the severe malnutrition, were listed as contributory factors to her death. Rigor mortis had fully developed at the time of the discovery of her body, indicating Sylvia may have been deceased for up to eight hours before she was found. Although Dr. Kebble did note Sylvia had been recently bathed, possibly after death, and that this act could have um, hastened the lost, loss of body temperature and thus speeding the onset of rigor mortis. On December 30th, 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude Banaszewski and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Banaszewski Jr. Also indicted were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. All were charged with having repeatedly struck beaten, kicked, and otherwise inflicting a culmination of fatal injuries to Sylvia likings with premeditated malice. So uh, yeah, clearly uh, they could see that they, they all knew what they were doing. They purposely did these things. 
Three weeks prior to the filing of the indictments against the five defendants, Stephanie Banaszewski had been released from custody upon a right of habeas corpus bond with her attorney successfully contending the state had insufficient evidence to support any murder or culmination of fatal injuries charges against her. Stephanie waived her immunity from any potential impending prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering Likens. So she took a lesser punishment and testified against the rest of her family and the rest of the teenage accomplices. At a formal pretrial hearing held on March 16, 1966, several psychiatrists testified before Judge Saul Isaac Rabb as to their conclusions regarding psychiatric evaluations they had conducted upon three individuals indicted upon Sylvia's murder. These experts testified that all three were mentally competent to stand trial. The trial of Gertrude Banaszewski, her children Paula and John, Richard Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard began on April 18, 1966. All were tried together before Judge Rabb at Indianapolis City County Building. Um, one of one of the first witnesses to testify on behalf of the prosecution was Deputy Coroner Charles Ellis, who testified on April 29th as to the intense pain Sylvia had suffered, stating that her fingernails were broken backwards. Numerous deep cuts and punctures, punctures covered much of her body and that her lips were essentially in shreds due to her having repeatedly bitten and chewed upon them. Ellis further testified that Sylvia had been in an acute state of shock for between two and three days prior to her death and that Sylvia may have been in too advanced a state of shock to offer much resistance to any form of subjected treatment in her final hours. Although he emphasized that aside from the extensive swelling inside and around her genitalia, Sylvia's body bore no evidence of direct sexual molestation. On May 2nd and 3rd, Jenny Likens... Uh, testified against all five defendants, stating that each had reportedly and extensively both physically and emotionally abused her sister, adding that Sylvia had done nothing to provoke the assaults and that there had been no truth in either the rumor she had been falsely accused of spreading or the slurs each had made against Sylvia's character. During her testimony, Jenny stated the abuse her sister and to a much lesser degree she herself had endured began approximately two weeks after they had begun to live in the Banaszewski household and that as the abuse her sister was forced to endure escalated, Sylvia had occasionally been unable to produce tears due to her acute state of dehydration. Jenny burst into tears as she recalled how, just days before Sylvia died, she had said to her, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I am going to die, I can tell you. That is seriously so 
fucking sad. I can't even imagine having to relive that again. Um, Reliving that statement that Sylvia made to Jenny after now that she is gone. The trial of the uh, five defendants lasted 17 days before the jury retried uh, to consider its verdict. On May 19, 1966, after deliberating for eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude Banaszewski guilty of first-degree murder, recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula Banaszewski was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Hobbs, Hubbard, and John Banaszewski Jr. were found guilty of manslaughter. Upon hearing Judge Rabb pronounce the verdicts, Gertrude and her children burst into tears and attempted to console each other as Hobbs and Hubbard remained impassive. On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula Banaszewski were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. The same day, Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Banaszewski Jr. each received sentences of 2 to 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformatory. News of Gertrude Banaszewski's impending parole hearing created an uproar throughout Indiana. Jenny Likings and other immediate family members of Likings um, came together um, and protested against any prospect of her release. The members of two anti-crime groups also traveled to Indiana to oppose Banaszewski's potential parole and to publicly support the Likens family. Members of both groups initiated a sidewalk picket campaign. Over the course of two months, these groups collected over 40,000 signatures from the citizens of Indiana. Um... You know, to and it, all those signatures gathered demanded that Gertrude Banaszewski remain incarcerated for the remainder of her life. Within her parole hearing, Banaszewski stated her wish that Lincoln's death could be undone. Although she minimized her responsibility for any of her actions, stating, I'm not sure what role I played in Sylvia's death because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. I mean, I would hope so. Like, clearly you are the one who mostly convinced and talked a lot of these kids into doing it. Could have they said yet? Yeah, no, of course they could have. Um, but she was definitely the leader here. Um, over the 14 years that Gertrude Banaszewski uh, was in prison, she was known as a model prisoner at the Indiana Woman's Prison. She worked in the prison sewing shop and was known as somewhat of a den mother to younger female inmates, becoming known to some with the, within the prison by the nickname Mom. By the time of Gertrude's ultimate parole in 1985, she had changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, a combination of her middle name and maiden name, and described herself as a devout Christian. Bullshit. I'm not believing it. Within her parole hearing, Banaszewski stated her wish that 
oh, like I said, that uh, Lycan's death could be undone. Taking Gertrude's good conduct in prison into account, the parole board marginally voted in favor of granting her parole. She was released from prison on December 4, 1985. Following her 1985 release from prison, Gertrude Banaszewski relocated to Iowa. She never accepted full responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged torment and death, insisting she was unable to uh, precisely recall any of her actions in the months of Sylvia's prolonged and increasing abuse and torment within her home. She primarily blamed her actions upon the medication she had been prescribed to treat her asthma. Gertrude Banaszewski lived in um, Laurel, Iowa until her death due to lung cancer on June 16, 1990 at the age of 61. All I can say is that I hope she suffered the worst case of lung cancer ever recorded I hope that she was in pain and miserable and bedridden and had to wet herself and defecate on herself and just basically anything that she did to Sylvia, I hope she felt that pain at the end of her life. So RIP, rest in pieces, Gertrude Banaszewski, you are a horrible woman. Thank you for listening to this episode. I know it was a rough one. Anything to do with children always is. Um, If you like this uh, case, I know that there were a couple films made on it. The 2007 film, An American Crime, was directly based upon the life and murder of Sylvia Likens. And then The Girl Next Door is loosely based upon the murder of Sylvia Likens. And then um, the Investigation Discovery Channel commissioned a documentary focusing upon the abuse and murder of Sylvia Likings as part of its true life crime documentary series, Deadly Women. So yeah, just a couple little suggestions there. So you can find me on Facebook at True Crimes Untold Podcasts. Instagram at the same handle, True Crimes Untold Podcast. I'm on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Radio Public. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you can be notified when new episodes are released. Thank you guys, and I will see you next weekend.